This is Southern Arch Heretic, shifting the burden, arguing the elements, finishing up the elements and arguments. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series, where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting, and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non-believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. We've been working our way through the elements. Let's keep going. Element 7. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will return to earth. As I work my way through these eight elements, understanding that I'm only to number seven, it seems that the arguments become necessarily redundant. Any argument related to Jesus' resurrection is based on the writings of the New Testament, period. There's simply nothing else. The only other evidence offered is that the refusal of the martyrs to give up their faith or recant prior statements when facing death is somehow proof of the truth of their claims. I've already addressed the serious issues with that particular view, and so I won't repeat myself. Where are the claims that Jesus will return? When we look at the Gospels, which are the only possible sources, and again, sources you can't consider, we see a few alleged quotes from Jesus that mention the end times or the coming kingdom of God. He describes the Son of Man arriving in the clouds with trumpets, etc. He describes the kingdom of God as imminent, These alleged quotes have been interpreted as describing a second coming of Jesus. However, they simply do not. Jesus is describing with flair what he believes to be the coming of the new kingdom. He sometimes describes his appearance with God's kingdom in fantastical terminology because he's being presented as the king, but he isn't describing some future date when he returns to end humanity. He's describing a future in which the kingdom of God is established on earth, which he promises will occur before the end of his generation. I'm not going to bother with addressing each quote. There are only a few, but if you find them and review the context, I believe you'll agree with me. These are messianic prophecies, which were incredibly common during this time period especially by those downtrodden groups living in territories occupied by the Romans. I've already explained that no one in the first century A.D. would have believed that a claim of being the Jewish Messiah was a claim of divinity. I suppose the book of Revelation is the source most people commonly envision when discussing end times and the second coming of Christ. It seems to become especially important when folks start discussing the rapture. By the way, rapture Theology is relatively new. It didn't really spread until it was included in the first published reference Bible, which became the best-selling Bible in the late 19th century. The rapture was introduced in the footnotes. Somehow it took hold. Go figure. The idea that the believers will be instantly removed, or raptured, to heaven prior to the Great Tribulation and the ultimate return of Jesus is found nowhere. In the Bible. 
It stems from visions received by a woman in Scotland in 1830 named Margaret MacDonald. After placing herself into a trance for several hours, old Maggie claimed that she received a revelation that Jesus' return would happen in two phases. And boom! Now people believe in the rapture. The book of Revelation was also written more than a generation after Jesus' death. It's a book of prophecy. Why try and interpret this book for application in modern times, as opposed to any other book of prophecy? I hear Nostradamus was pretty good. Element 8. God rewards or punishes humans after they die based upon their thoughts and actions while alive. Heaven or hell? Have you seen the billboards? They're everywhere in the southern U.S. It sounds like an easy choice when you describe the suffering in hell, but what do I have to do to get to heaven? Oh, yeah. Simply believe some stuff I'm told by another human unconditionally and don't ask too many questions. Obviously, the idea of an afterlife is not unique to Christians. The concept of a glorious resting place for the just is not original. The idea of a less than stellar afterlife for the unjust is also a concept that reveals itself in multiple cultures and belief systems throughout history. What I find most interesting about the idea of final judgment is that the supreme celestial micromanager who created me and guides my decisions according to his mysterious but magnificently just plan has the balls to judge me based upon some of the decisions I apparently have no choice but to make or thoughts I apparently have no choice but to think. I know about free will. I also know that free will cannot exist if God is also omniscient. If he already knows what's going to happen, meaning he already knows your choice, where's the choice? So instead of trying to wrap my head around this conundrum for the umpteenth time, I will pose this question. When did humans begin believing in a single, all-powerful creator God that is also loving and just? Evil Influence Tis not the violent hands alone that bring The curse, the ravage, and the downward doom Although to these full oft the yawning tomb Owes deadly surfeit, but a keener sting A more immortal agony will cling To the half-fashioned sin which would assume Fair virtue's garb, the eye that sows the gloom With quiet seeds of death hence formed to spring what time the sun of passion burning fierce Breaks through the kindly cloud of circumstance The bitter word and the unkindly glance The crust and canker coming with the years Are liker death than arrows and the lance Which through the living heart at once doth pierce George MacDonald, 1867 
I fail to see how the omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe that eavesdrops on our every word, action, and thought, and has a purpose in mind for each individual, isn't a dick. When did we decide he wasn't? Clearly in the Old Testament, he's not so kind. His actions in that holy book simply cannot be viewed as just. He doesn't seem to prefer those that behave in an ethical or moral manner over those that don't. He mostly seems concerned with manipulating folks into worshiping him, either by promise of prosperity or threat of destruction. He's petty, vengeful. His rules really make no sense in our modern world, and to be honest, we don't pay attention to most of them anyway. He seems to have selected the chosen people at random, or maybe they were the only tribe that spoke his language. Maybe he workshopped his ideas with other desert tribes or even city populations, but just couldn't get the whole wrath thing to take off. Also, selling men on the idea of taking a sharp object to their personal holiest of holies has to be an uphill climb. You want to do what to my pecker? I'm guessing that's why branding them while they're young became the settled method. So again, when did humans develop the idea of a benevolent, loving, all-powerful judge? Does anyone see the irony in a benevolent, merciful, loving God that has no reservations when it comes to damning you to hell? The origin of the concept of a single loving God is of great interest to me. With only a cursory glance at some preliminary sources, I feel confident in stating that it's a modern concept that seemingly best flourishes within modern monotheistic religions. There have always been deities associated with love, kindness, justice, and the like, but those gods are usually only one of many, and so aren't omnipotent. The Christian God is supposed to be a loving and caring Father to us all. I suppose fatherhood could calm an irritated, self-obsessed God down. Maybe the birth of a son really changed his outlook. It's interesting that God decided to reveal his loving nature so recently. Most experts in the subject agree that humans have been around for quite a while, up to 300,000 years. Even if we agree that we've only been around for, say, 100,000 years, just to make the math simpler. More than 97% of our time in existence passed with God not giving a shit. Humans went about their business for 97,000 years or so before God decided to reveal himself to a small desert tribe. Why did he wait so long? Are the generations that came before all rotting in hell? That doesn't seem fair. What exactly is the evidence of his loving nature? For every positive result in an individual's life, I can often point to a tragedy in that same individual's life, and if not, can always find one in someone else's. Why do we want so badly to give God credit for the good things that happen to us? Why do we make excuses for him when bad things happen? Why should we blame ourselves when bad things happen if he's in control? It really is an unhealthy relationship. Imagine that you told your mother 
that you found this perfect mentor that is kind, loving, and takes care of your every need. All he requires of you is that you give him complete authority and worship him. Now, imagine that you went on to explain that sometimes things aren't that great. Sometimes they're even horrible and torturous, but that your mentor never gives you more than you can handle. There may already be sirens and red flags going off in your head. I know there should be. Sure, sometimes there are some injuries, maybe even unforeseeable deaths of people close to you, but he's totally in control and really is great at planning, and so you don't want to question his motives. You make clear to your mother that your mentor has convinced you that it's not important that you understand why he makes bad things happen. You aren't capable of understanding. His ways are beyond yours or anyone else's limited understanding. How do you think your mother would react? How would you react if your child came to you with that pronouncement, so certain of their correctness that any attempt to question it would be met with deep offense as if they were personally insulted by your blasphemous queries? Welcome to the world of the atheist and agnostic when addressing a believer. The point of this is to say that an individual being forced to unconditionally love someone whom they are also forced to unconditionally fear may be involved in the most abusive relationship imaginable. How can a person be expected to love someone or something that demands worship? I personally cannot be commanded to love. I'm not sure how anyone can. I could conceivably be filled with enough fear or pain to pledge everlasting faith in and allegiance to whatever you have. I may say the necessary words under enough pressure, but the idea that I can be forced to actually feel love when I don't otherwise is ludicrous. You will notice that I haven't spent any time discussing the devil. Satan is as ridiculous as any other invisible agent. If Satan can also make me do things, then how is he not equal to God? If God wants to defeat Satan, why doesn't he just defeat Satan? Why is there a devil anyway? Maybe God needs someone to blame for his bullshit sometimes wasn't me. It was Satan. I'm noticing a running theme with this Yahweh character. He really digs the scapegoat. The Closing Argument Earlier, I mentioned the order of the final argument. Usually because the prosecution has the burden of proof, it gets to go first. The defense is allowed a closing argument if it desires, and then the prosecution is allowed to rebut. So basically, the prosecution gets to argue, hear the defense argue, and then go last. The reason stated is because the prosecution maintains the burden of proof, and so it's in the interest of fairness. I can tell you from experience that having the last word is a great advantage. Usually, final arguments consist of taking the testimony and evidence introduced at trial and presenting them in such a way as to convince the jurors that they should see things your way. For the prosecution, it's a chance to point to their best evidence 
and explain how it proves their assertions beyond a reasonable doubt. For the defense, it's usually a chance to shine a light on the inadequacies of the proof. In this case, the argument has been made. I've done the best I can to present what evidence and proof I could find to support the assertion that a Christian God exists. Obviously, I don't believe one does, and I've gone to great lengths to express that in my challenges to the believer's arguments. When we treat evidence of God in the same manner as evidence of human crimes, that so-called evidence becomes flimsy, at best. I can't help but feel like that little old lady in the Wendy's commercial from the 1980s who exclaimed, Where's the beef? Where's the proof? To repeat the Carl Sagan standard, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The burden should not be on those that are asking the questions. The burden of proof should be on those who claim to know the answers without asking the questions. If you follow the instructions of the judge, which would be that you must consider the evidence without any preconceived biases, and you must come to a conclusion based solely upon your satisfaction with the reliability of the proof beyond a reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty, you will have no choice but to find for the non-believers. If proof of God can't survive the beyond-reasonable-doubt standard, how can people have such certainty? It's time to shift the burden. If the proof for God were a hamburger, it would be a bun with lettuce, tomato, and maybe mustard. Where's the beef? Love you. Mean it.